I like watching them enjoy being in the space and it sort of still gives me a bit of a thrill to this day when you sort of say people are actually coming and parting with hard-earned cash to eat the food that we're cooking that's sort of you have to step back and sort of appreciate that for what it is sometimes because like not everybody has the, the luck of having a restaurant that people want to come to and you know I'm very very grateful for that every day this is the crackling I'm Anthony Huckstep The path to becoming a chef is different for everyone. But for Louis Katupas, it came much later in life. After a decade in the public service, he handed in his resignation and went travelling, and by luck, or by chance, found a job in a kitchen in France. He quickly realised where he wanted his future to go. Louis, you made a, an incredible shift from the public service into the world of hospitality. Um, why did you make that move? Um, I've always been interested in like politics and public policy um, from like very young age, just growing up the way I did. I had a trade union, trade unionist as a father and a social worker and teacher as a mother. Um, so that kind of stuff was, you know, dinner table conversation. And I, I, I was always sort of fascinated by those um, sort of the machinations of behind the scenes stuff and politics. Um, and I think. <laughs> I think after like I think it was seven years I was counting it the other day I was seven or eight years I was in the public service in various roles, and I still remember sort of being there and just feeling completely out of my depth and not in a good way. That it was just like, hey, this is fun. It was just like, this isn't kind of what I like to do. I like I like the subject matter, but the work itself just it didn't sit that well with me. Um, and I think when I left, it was almost accidental ending up in hospitality. It was. Um, yeah, it was. I, I had worked when I was in high school in a, in a kitchen um, for Dave Tarekas, who had Parama at the time. But um, I remember looking at the hours he was working and going, who the hell's crazy enough to do this for a career? Um, so I ended up studying and working in the public service instead. But like full circle, I guess, I, I ended up leaving the public service um, without any real plans to join hospitality at all. It was just like, I don't want to be here. I'm not happy. I need to find something else to do with my life and I'm not 100% certain what that is yet but, you know, it was, it was either stupid or brave or whatever but I just, I left and then I kind of fell into this, um, I think fell into this career sort of like when I was traveling actually. It was um, accidental and sort of somewhat drunken I think is probably the best way of describing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a well-trodden path into the industry that uh, the accidental uh, move into hospitality. Well, Tell us about that moment. What was that accidental sort of move? Well, um, after after the public service, um, I ended up sort of just dabbling in a bit of kind of half-assed food writing, I guess. Me and my girlfriend had started to try and set up a blog when food blogs were still a thing and photography was kind of driving them. And we ended up deciding to just take it overseas just because we both needed a bit of a break. And we had this intention of traveling around Europe and doing this sort of beautifully photographed food blog and then we kind of realized that no one really cares what we cook because we're not actually very good cooks, as it turns out. And we ended up sort of just falling in with this clique of, of chefs in Paris that were sort of really young, doing really cool stuff in the 11th arrondissement of Paris, hence the name of the restaurant we've got. But I'd never really thought of cooking in the way they were approaching it. It was like supermarket driven. They'd go to the, they'd go to the markets every two or three days. 
um, pick up heaps of stuff and just cook on the day with what they had. It was chalkboard driven. Were, like none of them were French, which was also notable. They're all English, Australians, Swedish, Japanese. Yeah, really weird mix of people, but they'd all worked at great places all around the world. And we just kind of like thought this is a like really cool vibe. We ended up staying in Paris for five months rather than the two or three weeks we'd intended. And we got this crazy idea that I could go into the restaurant, one of these restaurants, um, and just sort of help out as a dish hand or peeling peas or whatever um, for a day and then sort of write a bit of a profile piece on the chef and sort of do an interpretation on one of the dishes. We didn't get very far with that because like the second place I went to, um, they were actually looking for a job and we'd had a few drinks and my girlfriend was just like, he wants to learn how to cook, so hire him. So, yeah, it was it was several drinks, to be honest. But um, we were on pretty good terms with that chef at that point anyway um, at a place called Au Passage. And he he was just like, yeah, cool, come in. Look, we can't pay you but because um, I was, like, wasn't there on a working visa. So I just kind of went in there and sort of absorbed as much as I could. And then I was like, well, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could actually try and be a chef because I'm really enjoying it. And I just felt instinctively more at home in the kitchen in the first week than I had in like seven or eight years in the public service. I just, when someone said, you know, do this, do that, I kind of knew how to do it. I knew how to learn and get better. Whereas in the public service, I kind of, I don't feel like I was moving those, like getting in the right direction, those steps and going like, hey, I'm making the world a better place and I'm doing a really good job of it. In the kitchen, I was like, you know, fillet of fish, you know, I don't know, whatever it was. I can't even remember the sort of endless number of jobs I was doing over there. But um, it just felt more comfortable and more satisfying doing that very, very quickly than I'd ever found that job satisfaction in the public service. I want, I want to explore the world of hospitality that you've had since that moment. Um, but what sort of role did food have for you playing up in your family? Food was like, I was, it was always a very food-centric household, my one. Um, my mum... My mom's half Greek, so there was always like big sharing sort of food at the table. And if that was just going to, I mean, I, I also grew up in the inner west of Sydney, so I was surrounded by, you know, all of the Greek and the Vietnamese food of Marrickville, sort of the like the Lebanese food out of Lakemba, and like it, it was just like food was everywhere all the time. And even though like you know it was still stuck in the sort of what what was nineties kind of food, I remember all my like the friends that would come over would always be like man, you guys really put effort into lunch. And I'm like, dude, we're just having pasta. But you'd go to their house and it'd be like a white bread sandwich for lunch and that kind of stuff. And you're like, no judgment. Like it was, it was all good food, but it was like there was – I didn't realize that my family had such a food focus on it until I kind of stepped out of it, if that made sense. Um, but like food was always there. Food was always really important. Like the trips to sort of um, – the Haberfield delis and stuff like that. So these huge spreads of like gorgonzola and prosciutto and that kind of stuff would always be the lunchtime things on the weekend. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that kind of always started, started for me, like just always loving eating. And I think I often hear chefs that are like, you know, I always liked cooking when I was a kid. And I think that's probably true, to be honest, of probably every chef. But for me, I, the more I think about it, it's like, you know what? I think I started cooking because I really like eating. I really like sort of tasting food and understanding where it's coming from and how people sort of come up with dishes and that kind of thing. Um, but also the overall experience. So like food, like some of the best meals I've ever had, I couldn't tell you what was on the table, but I just remember having a really good time 
like hanging out with friends, sharing sort of huge plates of food and large amounts of booze. Um, that's kind of been a hugely important part of it for me always. And like that was, I think that definitely came from, came from family, no doubt about it. You're doing some interesting things with pork on the menu uh, now, but when you were young, did, do you remember any feasts where, where pork was central to that? Um, yeah, I mean, like mixed in with all, all kinds of other stuff. Like we, like it was being, having access to all those good food places in the inner West meant that those, those butchers were really good quality. That's, like, there was, I remember there was this fantastic butcher in Summer Hill and it was like, it was always sort of a, a roast pork. It was always a roast lamb leg. Something like that was always, you know, one of those big meals. Um, I think I, like pork, pork at this point, no more than, than any other, I guess. But I think like it's one of those things I've, I've I always come back to. I think it's just such a comfort food and can be done in so many different ways. I think like one of the most comforting pork sort of meals that I remember having, and it's sort of just the evo- the evocative smells for me just drive me nuts. Uh, when I was I was I was I was an adult by this point, but Dad and I were working on a place over in France, like a little barn they've been sort of restoring. And we didn't have any electricity and no, and no water. We had one gas burner to boil water for, um, for baths, for washing and for, for cooking. And every day we would start this meal um, at about 12 o'clock so we could have it ready for dinner because it was midwinter. And it would like almost always be like a rolled piece of pork belly, like just started with a bit of – you know, some onions, some rosemary from the garden, some carrots and some celery, and half a bottle of just cheap French wine from the supermarket. And it would sit there simmering for like, I don't know, four or five hours. And it was just the smell of this permeating through the whole house. And that was that was a feast. Like I, when I start cooking that and like at home here or, you know, we're doing something similar on the menu, that smell always takes me back to that exact spot. And it's just like, oh. I don't know. Rolled pork belly cooked for like four hours, so it's falling apart. It just drives me nuts. <laughs> so good. I'm fascinated by that sort of move from public service into hospitality. Has, has your time in the public service, has has that um, been beneficial to you now being a restaurateur? I would like to think so, yeah. I mean, I, I've always sort of thought that, you know, I'm kind of glad I had that life before I went into hospitality um, because – it gives you a bit of a different perspective on life and, and that kind of thing. Like I look at a lot of chefs who have been career chefs since they're like 14 or 15 and I kind of see how it's tied them out, how it's made them jaded, the exposure to things like substance abuse and long hours and the acceptance of those things as, as normal in hospitality for me have been, I think they're quite damaging for a lot of people and it's one of the reasons I think a lot of people probably leave when they hit their 30s because they're just like, I have to escape this, it's toxic. And for me, I think like starting as a mature age chef, it gives you a different perspective on what's important. I mean, I worked at a, like worked in a, a building where it was effectively a nine to five thirty eight every day job. And, you know, I mean, there were days where it was longer and it was a lot harder and that kind of stuff, but there was still a really big emphasis on on work life balance and taking care of staff. There's public service still has a lot of stuff that needs to improve in terms of pastoral care for its 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 people but there is a big emphasis on work-life balance and I think that is absent in a lot of hospitality places and something I've always tried to make sure is 
as front and center of like the, the workplace culture of places I've worked or managed. Um, so understanding that like a workplace has to be respectful, has to be safe and has to be like a positive place for people to work in. And they have that right and expectation to have that. I think that's something, I mean, I'm not saying it's exclusive to places that I've worked at, but it's something I've been really, really insistent on being paramount. And I don't know that that's like the long-term culture in hospitality, if that makes sense. It's more just this, this is hard. We've just got to dig in and do it. doesn't matter what the cost is, if that makes sense. So there's, yeah, a bit of, a bit of like other life experience, I think, more than anything else. Um, and interactions with, yeah, interactions with the staff, I think makes it, like that, that's my priority, I guess, making it a positive place to be. You mentioned you grew up in, in Sydney, but what brought you to, to Canberra? It was a public, it was a graduate public service job at the time. So 2007, I finished studying um, like international relations and political economy. Um, 2005, I taught uni, I taught a sort of undergrad subject for a year and then got a job as a graduate in the Department of Industry at the time. So I was, um, you know, writing briefs and doing spreadsheets and that kind of thing. Um, me and my girlfriend at the time both got graduate jobs. She was in foreign affairs and I was in industry. And we moved down and probably had watched too much West Wing and thought we were going to change the world and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that was kind of where we thought we were going to be for quite a while. Um, yeah, so that was that's how we came to Canberra. I've like I've always thought like like I, when I first moved to Canberra, I, I got to be honest, I was not a huge fan. I um all of my my family support networks were still in in Sydney, and I don't think I embraced Canberra for what it what it is and and was back then. I I kept on comparing it to what I sort of thought I wanted as a guy in their sort of I was in my early twenties. I wanted to go out and party and Canberra compared to Sydney just didn't have that kind of X factor, I guess. And then I think like, I've, I've always thought about like I've moved to Canberra three different times weirdly because my girlfriend being in the foreign affairs, she was posted overseas. So I took three years out and did sort of public service work over there, but it was very, very different from being in Canberra. So we moved back after that. And then when I quit the public service and went traveling to, to Paris, I had no real plans necessarily no real plans of, of like what was ahead. Like I didn't know if it was Canberra. I didn't know if it was Sydney. I didn't have a job. I didn't really have anywhere to stay at that point. So I was still trying to figure out whether it was, you know, whether Sydney was a better place to move into or Canberra. But I, I had a new girlfriend at this point who was in, um, in Canberra and I was trying to figure out how to sort of make like, making like uh, a career in hospitality, but I didn't know anyone in Sydney. I didn't know anyone in Canberra. I had no idea how to get a job. So I kind of, I moved here, I've moved here three times, twice for public service and once, once without much of a plan, but like kind of a vague idea of going into hospitality, if that makes sense. And now it's like, now it's home. Like it's absolutely 100% home. I love everything about like Canberra. It's outdoors. It's got a sort of laid back lifestyle. It's, I mean, it's bloody freezing at the moment, but it's every time I go to Sydney, it feels less and less like home to me. It's it's where family is, and I love that, but it's not not my home anymore. What's been the real important venues um, as you sort of applied your trade and learnt that your craft in hospitality? There's not a huge list. I was trying to figure this out the other day. Um, like, there's 
it's places I've eaten at are probably as influential as the places I've worked at. But the two the two major ones for me were um, Au Passage in Paris, which I was working for the chef that I was talking about before, Edward Delling Williams, who's just opened his own place in in Normandy now. All the chefs in Paris seem to be moving to the countryside. He um, he's the one that sort of just said, "Look, we can't sort of really give you a proper job, but if you want to come in and learn, we'll sort of we'll teach you everything we can." Um, and interestingly, actually, I thought you'd like this story. Um, on the first day I turned up, um, completely green. I just bought my first pair of Crocs. They gave me an apron and I walked into the kitchen and he gave me a bone saw and a butchering knife, like a boning knife, and it was a half a pig on the bench. And it's for the first thing he said, we should break this down. Um, and I think, I mean, like, you know, I had to sort of figure out how to take its head off, its ears. I had to skin the whole thing. We made bacon. We made cutlets. We made terrine. We made, you know, brawn. We made the whole lot. And, like, that was my first job in his kitchen. He just – he'd worked at St. John's. So, he guys was fairly comfortable and familiar with that whole nose-to-tail, whole, whole beast butchery um, and whole beast cooking, which I think was one of the first things that I just fell in love with in that place because it was, like, every, every aspect – and every every approach to the animal was was taken into consideration when they were cooking. So it was like all of those dishes were on the menu at one point. And I mean, they even made like pig's blood. Um, there was a pig's blood ice cream by one of the chefs that was there that was absolutely bananas. Like he's just opened his own place in Denmark, um, but he was he was a lunatic, but like one of the most incredibly talented young chefs I've ever seen. Um, a guy called Dave Harrison um, is just amazing to watch on on socials um but ed um ed was like and still is a it's a huge hugely important sort of part of my story i guess but i am in contact with him quite a lot just sort of catching up seeing how things are going because he's opened a couple of places since um but his encouragement and like hospitality i guess in the other sense of the word, in letting me into his kitchen. He's, he was generous with his knowledge and his teaching and his time. And I think such a huge amount of how I cook comes from there, but also how I approach hospitality more generally, like the kind of experience I'm trying to provide and on ZM. And the other place would have to be Rockford because, I mean, frankly, it's the only other real place I've worked for a long time. Um, it was... Like I started as a dishy there um, when I came back from Paris and I still remember meeting Nick because I was like, yeah, the jobs, there's a job there. There's not a job there. Oh, there might be something. I was just sort of trying to figure it out with the chef. When I met Nick, he basically said, you know, we don't have another, we don't have another full-time position in the kitchen, but if you come in and do prep and wash dishes during the week and wait tables on Fridays and Saturday nights, um, you can have a job. So I was washing dishes. I was prepping. Well, on the occasion where there was like the, a night where I was allowed to cook in the kitchen because of staffing, whatever, I'd do that. But on Fridays and Saturdays, I'd bring in my, um, I'd bring in my jeans and my cons, and I'd wait tables. And then if I got busy, I'd have to be the bouncer out the front because Rockford was still a fairly new venue at the time. So the only thing I didn't do at that place was um, was make cocktails, and I still to this day cannot make a cocktail to save my life. Yeah, <laughs> appalling. But yeah, they're the two main places. I did a. Um, I did a very brief stint um, at 
um, Firedor when Firedor was still in its first 12 months before I came back down to Canberra. But it was so brief, I don't think you know anyone up there would actually remember me. It was a matter of weeks before I was like, no, no, I need to get down to Canberra. There's some stuff I need to figure out and sort out. Um, and I just I couldn't I couldn't sort of commute. I'd sort of arrange something where it was like work full time hours condensed into four days. But then the idea was I was going to try and commute down to Canberra um, after my shift on Saturday night, and I'm like. This is going to kill me at some point. So um, I unfortunately had to sort of end that one earlier than I wanted it to, um, which is a real shame because I love what Lennox does. I love the whole, um, the whole uh, like the fire sort of focus stuff, which is his his thing. And it's, I've tried to do that as much here as I possibly can, wood fire and charcoal, um, which, yeah, I mean, it's, it's had a, a probably – an exponentially larger impact on how I cook than the amount of time and the experience I actually got to have there. It's just, it just sort of planted a seed, I think, of, of what I wanted to do and how much fun cooking over fire is. Tell, a bit, tell us a bit about um, your voice on the plate and finding sort of your way with food. Um, God, I'm, I think Rockford was a bit of a blank slate in a way. Um, I don't think Nick ever really intended to have a restaurant there um when we started it was quite a small menu it was primarily a bar but um we were really trying to figure out how to make um how to make the venue overall work better and what we were realizing was that no one was um no one was really coming to booze up on a tuesday wednesday night in canberra which is understandable um so i remember having a sit down and we chatted and we thought okay cool we need to make this a restaurant earlier in the week and it can be a bar on its on the Friday Saturdays to do that we really need to sort of transform the food into like a like a really good bar food so we started to just progressively um, I think expand the menu and experiment with things and see what people liked um, and the stuff that people felt comfortable eating if they were in a restaurant but like it was a like still a bar but they're in a restaurant kind of restaurant quality food in a bar setting. So really working on on what we were trying to do there, I gave me a bit of uh, – Nick, Nick sort of didn't really have any parameters around it. Um, he wasn't massively keen on things like um, – on awful at the time, so tried to change his mind on that one. But um, I think I always loved exploring food from all over the place. And what I loved about cooking in, in France was that – even though it was in Paris and most of the clientele were young French people, it was by no means French food that we were eating. It was um, it was all from around the world. Like, like as I said, there were Japanese and Australian chefs, and they were cooking stuff that I think they were introducing new ideas into the the sort of French palate. There's an Australian Korean chef that was over there, sort of putting gochujang on the menu, and their minds were blown. But like, I think what I really enjoyed about that kind of food was that it, it, not being French food, it wasn't it wasn't bound by any kind of cultural um, or national kind of identity. It was just like this is really good. Let's put it on a plate. And what I really liked about that approach to food when you sort of bring it to Australia is that our palates are so broad. We have such a big migration from all over the world. We're exposed and ready to taste things from every every corner there is on this planet, and. The ability to do that in a restaurant might seem a bit crazy, sort of. You, like it still requires a bit of um, 
coordination from a menu point of view, but it, it means you can actually try ingredients and styles of food from all over the place. So I think the best way of describing how I'd like to cook that was, I think it was written by Gareth Myers, who was a former GT rider. Um, he described this kind of bowerbird style, which I kind of liked because it's like, you know how they're a bit chaotic, they're a bit messy, they're kind of a little bit hoardery. Like I love going to sort of um, like spice stores and, and sort of, you know, whenever I go traveling or for another, whenever I'm in Sydney, going to all those shops and just filling a, chop, a shopping cart with stuff I'm probably never going to use, but sort of, allows you to sort of look at different things and different ideas and it's a bit more of an exploratory way of cooking I think than having a singular focus if that makes sense I don't know if that answered your question but it's kind of like I don't know if it answered your question at all now I think about it <laughs> I know you had the pop-up kiosk for a little while but tell us about that period of time and and um and then finding the site and creating uh Onzium. um okay so after Rockford went traveling um had a great time but then was also like i'm not really sure what the next stage is was trying to figure out if i could do a pop-up um and someone sort of pointed out this sort of empty cafe that had been just vacant for a good 12 months and i knew one of the owners of this place and they were using it as storage um because i don't i think they took the site because they didn't want another coffee shop opening up in competition because they've got another one 20 meters up the road which was kind of weird but i yeah it's super super strange but they had like a cafe fit out kitchen type thing and, you know, had an open window so you could serve out the window. Um, and I just offered them some money for, for the summer, just, you know, cause it was like 80% of it was outside dining. There was no way it was going to work in winter. Um, and I just said, look, I'll take it for summer if you want to, um, cover your rent. And, uh, for, for me, it was kind of about testing a particular area in Canberra. I'm not sure if many of your listeners are familiar with the geography of Canberra, but there's a giant lake in the middle. There's the city and there's the inner north and then there's the inner south. And for me, I live in the inner south and I've always wanted like a range of places to go to that have that kind of casual vibe. You're not going out for a super expensive meal. It's like, you know, you want to, if you want to go to Aubergine, um, you kind of – you know, you're going like to a special occasion meal. If you go into XO or say Lamb Shed or something like that, they're sort of much more of that casual vibe. But there wasn't a huge number of places in the inner south catering to that market. So I wanted to see if Kiosk, um, I wanted to see through Kiosk if the inner south and Kingston would support the kind of restaurant that I wanted to, I wanted to open. So it was kind of like a no strings attached thing. We could open and close as easily as we wanted to, no overheads, that kind of stuff. Um, so it was like it was a it was a real blessing that sort of you know we were we were able to sort of just open within a matter of weeks of signing the lease. We didn't do anything to the fit out because it was such a short sort of unofficial lease. We could we didn't feel the need. Um, did a bit of work and sort of fixed a few things up here and there, and then um, yeah, we opened. It took a little while, I think, for for people in the area to kind of grasp what we were trying to do. Um, but we went, like, we also went through some, like it was, we opened three weeks before the, the major bushfires in Canberra, which killed most of our outside dining. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then COVID happened. So COVID happened for the, like, sp- pretty much smack bang in the middle of, of the pop-up. So I guess I got a crash course in how to run a whole bunch of different businesses because we went from a no bookings establishment, fully a la carte, then we went to... 100% full takeaway and then 
We did um, full sort of set menu dining type thing. Um, yeah, with the fixed fixed price menu thing. So it was like, it was a lesson for me in how to sort of like do heaps of different things in a restaurant. Previously, I just cooked and it was like, okay, I've got to hire, I've got to buy wine, I've got to train, I've got to manage all of these things. But I think, I guess the, the easiest way of describing Kiosk was it was a fairly lengthy sort of um, market research exercise. Because when we on Kiosk, there was like, all right, now, you know, there was enough pop, like there was enough support for that that you know the inner south i'm confident the inner south would like a restaurant like what we're doing and um then there was a quite a big hailstorm smack bang in the middle of that whole period as well that had knocked out um the roof of this this cafe just up the corner and um i didn't i didn't ever know why but it just never reopened i think after the hailstorm and then COVID, it just never got back on its feet um and I'd walk past it and I'd driven around Kingston thinking, is this a great spot for a permanent site? Oh, I'm not really sure. Brought dad down. He thought it was rubbish because it's right next door bus stop. Um, <laughs> but when the like when the real estate opened the place, and it was it was it was not a great colour scheme, I'm gonna be honest. Like terracotta with purple and green just that didn't go well. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Um, but when he when he showed me the place, like it had it had the kind of galley kitchen and it had a, a wood-fired pizza oven, which were always good. But then when we took when he took me downstairs, um, there's just endless storage, like cool room, freezer, dry store, even like a weird, I'm pretty sure, dodgy prep kitchen that the guy had installed. So we were able to kind of, you know, build that up and sort of get that, that cleared from um, ACT Food and Health and stuff to make sure we were actually sort of allowed to be down there doing what we we're doing. But it came with some really good bones, some really good infrastructure. But the other part about it that um, the previous tenant had done was divide downstairs straight down the middle. So there was just one big storeroom that the landlord was using for storage for 20 years. And as soon as I saw it, I just thought, like, this has its own street access. It has its own sort of, like, own space altogether. And I just wanted, like... I just wanted to make it like its own separate bar. So now we've effectively, like in the last eight, eight weeks, have just opened a second venue downstairs. So there's the restaurant upstairs and we now have like a little wine bar, cocktail bar, snack bar kind of thing um, that can host another 35 odd people. So I, when I saw the site and I thought, there's two venues in one here, that seems like too good to be true. Um, yeah, I just, I am denied over it for ages and then, Finally, sort of, I think we, I signed a lease in March, March of last year and started building pretty much straight away with that. Did the experience with kiosks um, help uh, once you opened uh, the new restaurant or, or were there new lessons to be learned? Oh, there were definitely new lessons to be learned, but kiosk was immensely helpful. I think one of the things like I picked up from kiosk was like, I mean, I know it seems like a fairly obvious thing when you think about it retrospectively but trying to do all of those things at once like I thought yeah it's a small space I don't need a massive wine list I don't you know I, I, I can take care of all the floor stuff and I can take care of the wine and I can take care of the kitchen you need people that have like solid experience in those things to take care of them for you because I was just trying to take on way way too much um, I think having a really good team and trying to build a really good team was my absolute priority before I opened on TM just to make sure that people that came in here got the best possible experience from day one um that was 
something that was yeah I, I i didn't want to open and sort of be stretching myself too thin and i wanted to make sure that everyone that was working here was was keen to be here was bringing something really cool and sort of really sort of was on board with what the place is um i think the other thing that it was it was interesting was for me was like the demographics of kingston are quite diverse um it's got a lot of people that have been here a long time sort of fairly well established um retired public servants with you know fairly high level of disposable income a lot of grads move down to this part of town because it's where a lot of the sort of bigger name agencies are and then there's a whole lot of people that are my age that were public servants like 15 years ago that are settling down they want to move away from Braddon, sort of where it's a little bit less party and they want a house they're going to have kids and they still want to go somewhere and have a nice dinner and a nice bottle of wine and trying to find a venue that cuts across all of those demographics is um it's challenging and it's still sort of something that we're learning and refining to this day but also trying to stay true to what we're what we want to do and the, the venue that i want to sort of be operating if that makes sense so how to maintain that integrity but how to sort of make sure the customers are having a really good time is is something i guess i picked up a kiosk and it was something i knew we were going to have to try and figure out here as well um but yeah i mean like Every experience has has huge amounts of lessons that sort of move on to the next thing. With it's it's I couldn't have done what I'm doing here at OnZM without without kiosk. I have no doubt about that at all. You're doing all sorts of amazing things on the menu. Tell us a bit about the um, how pork weaves through the menu and some of the dishes that you're doing there. Um, we kind of rotate through all like like a whole bunch of meats and that kind of stuff. But what I love about pork is like I don't know. It, like it's such a um, a versatile meat, I guess. Like we almost always have a terrine or a riette on the menu. And during lockdown, during COVID, I bought I bought a mincer so that we could start doing all that stuff from scratch. So when I buy pork, I don't buy the premium cuts, if that makes sense. I never buy like a cutlet or a, a fillet. As good as they are, I find them a little bit wasteful because it's like what, less than 2% of a whole animal. Um, if you can if you can sort of find other cuts that are you know have heaps of flavor but are less popular you can put something on the menu more affordably that's going to taste super delicious and can be a bit more experimental with it i guess as well so when i buy pork um i'll often buy like whole shoulders and i'll buy whole legs and i'll buy whole bellies with the bone in and when i get that whole bone in belly for example which is what we did most recently um i can take that belly get a whole bunch of you know on the bone ribs that are super tasty on the grill um but then there's a whole bunch of there's you know still probably a kilo and a half of of belly after the bones finish that we can then take and mince up and that's what we did with sausages last week so we try and make everything we can in-house and pork lends itself really well to that because you've got you know great grilling cuts you've got great slow cooked cuts but you've also got all the charcuterie and that kind of stuff you can muck around with as well. Um, so, like, sausages is probably one of my favorite things to do. Um, working with, like, really great – like, I think we're getting it from Borrowdale at the moment. Um, but sort of really great sustainably produced local product and then sort of making it into this fin- this, this finished product that tastes, like, I'd like to say, pretty awesome. Like, the pork and pork and pistachio sausages we had on last week was super fun, super delicious. Um, but – that finished product I really, really love. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and pork, pork is, I think, even if it's not like the premium, like the prime meat that we're selling on the menu, there's always pork on the menu in some way, shape, or form. Like as a terrine, a rillette, a skewer, or, or a steak, or sorry, a cut of um, grilled meat or something like that. It kind of, it, it, pork is one of those like meats I think people kind of forget about sometimes because they're always like, oh, there's lamb, there's, there's beef, which are delicious. But pork is so versatile, it makes its way into so many different parts of a menu. It's almost always there somewhere, you know, like even if they're using pork fat to make sausages or to cook in or something like that. It's just such a, an, in, like, an inherently important sort of meat in the kitchen. I saw those sausages on uh, on Instagram last week, actually, and uh, it made me want to make a booking. T- tell us tell us about the sausage making process. Were there trials and errors and errors when you sort of started, and what makes a great sausage for you? Um, lots of trials and errors, that's for sure. Um, I this is going back a ways, but I um, my, my when I was a kid, my dad I think he had what I now realise was a jerky gun, which looks like a, a corking gun. And um, it was one of my favorite things when it was a sausage making day and we didn't know what we were doing. We just had like the, the collagen skins that feel like paper, but I still loved making them and I used, to think, I used to think they were absolutely delicious. I didn't like, you know, didn't realize there were so many things we were doing wrong back then, but they were delicious. Um, and then when my, I mentioned before my partner was posted overseas, she was posted to Zimbabwe, which didn't have a whole lot of, didn't have a very forward food culture is the polite way of saying it, I guess. And I kind of got sick of eating the really dry, bullversed sausages, which like they're a little bit too dry. Seasoning's great, lots of clove, lots of pepper, that kind of stuff. But the dryness of them is probably coming back to your part of the question about what makes a good sausage. This was not. So I ended up going to the super, not the super barn, the, um, the hardware store and buying myself a, a refillable corking gun and modifying that and then going to the butcher to get a whole bunch of skins to make sausages with. And I made sausages for myself because I just got so sick of the snags you could get over there. Um, I've still got that actually somewhere. Um, but the, the, your, your capacity is quite limited in how much you can do, but it's still kind of fun process. Like, you know, feeding this, like basically replacing the um, the silicon or the cork in this, this gun with it, you know, two kilos of pork mince. Everyone thought it was the weirdest thing they'd ever seen, but I loved it and it was heaps of fun. Um, when I started Kiosk, I started doing that again, but again, the capacity was so limiting that um, I ended up buying the mincer. And I was lucky enough to have um, Lachlan Cutt, who owns uh, Under Bakery in Mawson. He was working for me at the time and he'd done a bit of um, time at the Southlands Quality Meats Butchery. So, he knew how to make snags, so he was basically my tutor in how to make sausages. Um, so, the seasoning, the skin, how to sort of even the sort of tiny tricks about soaking the the natural casings and stuff like that. Like everything I, I learned from about making sausages, I learned from Lockie. Um, so, I guess like one of the things I think people do when they're making sausages themselves is probably is under season, and that's a, a. It sounds like it's it's hard to keep on adding salt to something, but the seasoning sort of subsides and makes the whole thing nicer um, if you sort of season to the right amount, which is quite a lot of – it's quite a lot of salt. I think the recipe that Lockie gave me was somewhere between like 15 and 20 grams of salt per kilo or something, which seems way too high now I think about it. Maybe it was more than that, but it was more than you would think is normal for a, like when you're seasoning meat. Um, but the other thing, the absolute number one trick 
was like, and I always got this wrong when I was younger, was you make the sausage and you cook it straight away. Leave it rest. If you leave a sausage to rest overnight, you end up with something, I don't know, it's just the meat relaxes, the skins relax, and then you get these nice tight sausages that sort of don't burst and sort of don't ooze out at the end of, you know, when you get a sausage and you cook it, and as soon as it hits the grill, it starts like crapping itself out one end. That's that's for me like what happens if you just cook a, a sausage straight out of the machine. If you leave it in the fridge overnight, you'll just get something that's just that much better texture. Um, but I guess the, the dryness is the like one of the key things for me. Like if you don't get the, the amount of fat right, and that's another thing, adding fat into a sausage, everyone's scared of fat these days, but hopefully they shouldn't be for too much longer. But like adding that fat in gives you like a nice juicy sausage as opposed to like one of those cardboard ones, if that makes sense. You mentioned the pork belly on the bone. Do you have, do you have any tips for, you know, cooking pork and, you know, getting the best out of it? Um, if you're cooking with skin on for me, I've always found that like drying the skin out doesn't, like it's probably something that everyone knows, but like trial and error for me was like cooking it on the, um, cooking it to try and get that really crunchy crackling skin, you need to dry it out first. So we'll get it, um, and leave it just to air in the, like with the air dry in the fridge for a little bit. And that skin will go from like super wet and soft to like almost leathery. And that leatheriness is what you want, I reckon, when you're cooking, particularly over um, over wood and and charcoal, um, because it, it it sort of just it then starts to turn into not quite crackling. It's somewhere between crackling and like chewy pork strips or something. But it's it's really really delicious. But if you do that without letting it dry out enough, it's just not going to work. Um, and always like I think for me, it's always. Don't cook it too hard and too fast. It'll just – because there's so much fat, it'll just flame up and the whole thing will burn. So going slowly – going cooking like pork a little bit more slowly for me is, is always getting the better um, – especially on the bone is getting a better result because it needs that extra bit of time to cook through on the bone but you don't want to dry it out too much. Well, Louis, you're making an incredible impact in this sort of new wave of um, restaurants that are happening in Canberra at the moment. What do you love about what you do? Um, I uh, Thank you, by the way. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I, I think I love when you take a plate out to a customer and they, I don't know, ex- explaining the story behind it to them, like where we got this from, where that farmer came, where that, you know, how that relationship with that farmer came out, how... You know, like, especially the vegetables. When you're sort of pulling a vegetable out, most people are like, oh, I fucking hate pumpkin. Sorry. I hate pumpkin. And then they'll be like, that was incredible. I've never had pumpkin like that. And when you change people's views and ideas on things because of something you do that's so simple but so, like, whether it's accessible for them to do at home or not, it's just something that they really loved and they're like, they changed their mind on something. I love that interaction with a customer, we can explain that. They're like, wow, that's so fantastic. That's amazing. I love I love that part of it and the experience, I guess, for them to sit down, have a really relaxed and comfortable place, like a comfortable meal, drink some really nice wine and not feel like, you know, they're spending their entire life savings that they need to sort of come into this really hushed space. I just really like watch – I like watching them enjoy being in the space and it sort of still gives me a bit of a thrill to this day when you sort of say people are actually coming and parting with hard-earned cash to eat the food that we're cooking that's sort of you have to step back and sort of appreciate that for what it is sometimes because like not everybody has the the luck of having a restaurant that people want to come to and you know 
I'm very, very grateful for that every day. But it's still, it's still a huge thrill at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, but I guess the other, like that's the service part of thing. For me personally, I love the exploratory side of cooking. I, ho- I own so many cookbooks, it's embarrassing. I, recently, I, I was recently given an ultimatum that they had to, half of them had to live in the shed or they had to go in the bin. So now half of them are in the shed. But I, I've just got this library of books that whenever I'm trying to figure out a menu idea or something like that, if I'm like, this is what I'm thinking, this is the kind of the country I want to sort of cook this from, whether it's, I don't know, like, a, like I don't know, I just recently bought a really cool book from um, sub-Saharan Africa and another one from Afghanistan. And going through them and just like the spice mixes, there's these commonalities between you know, I'm looking at things that sound like they have Greek names in an Afghan cookbook, but they're sort of similar kinds of ingredients, but you can see where the tiny tweaks and differences are. And I love, I love exploring that kind of stuff and the joy, like that's where the joy for me in food comes from. That's why I guess it comes back to what I was saying. I love eating, like I'll go traveling and I'll just eat my way through like every snack place I can find, every nice restaurant, whatever. I just, it's, I'm there to eat. And same with cookbooks. I just want to see what these things taste like. I want to explore all these different flavors. That's, that's where I get really excited, I guess. Well, it's been an absolute honor to have you today on the, on the crackling and, um, look forward to seeing what you do uh, from here on. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Will do. Thanks so much for having me guys. This is the crackling, a deep in the weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.